Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 21. That's the text in front of us this morning. The message title is The Sting of Betrayal. The Sting of Betrayal. At age 14, he ran away from home, and he fought in the French and Indian War. At the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, he joined the American Army as a colonel, and in 1775, shared a command with Ethan Allen at the capture of Ticonderoga. Later, he led a thousand men into Canada, where he fought at the Battle of Quebec. His courage in battle won him a promotion to Brigadier General, but something went awfully wrong. Thoughts of compromise ate away at his patriotic zeal, and soon the unthinkable happened. He offered his services to the British instead, and in 1780 devised a plan to surrender West Point to British control. What's his name? Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold. Today, instead of being remembered as a national hero, the name Benedict Arnold is synonymous with a traitor. A traitor. The same was true of Judas. He too was a traitor. Judas sold Jesus for 30 shekels of silver, which to him were more valuable than a savior destined for a cross. Have you ever felt the sting of betrayal? Maybe it was in your marriage. Maybe it was a close friend. Maybe it was one of your children. Jesus certainly knows what it feels like to be stung by betrayal. We know that not everyone who wears the uniform fights for his own team. And we see that very clearly this morning in our text. With that being said, let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. I know you just got comfy there in your seat. This is Mark, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Mark chapter 14, verses 10 through 21. These are the words that he pens. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priest. I'm sorry, back up to verse 10. That's, that's where I met there in case you didn't notice. Judas went to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. That's where we left off last week. We picked back up this morning. And on the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he, Jesus, came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table, eating, Jesus said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one of you who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him, one after another, is it I? He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. 
For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. Number one on your outline this morning would encourage you to take notes. I think you'll listen better if you do. Is this. The beautiful reminder. The beautiful reminder. We see this very clearly in verses 12 through 16. Look there in your Bible at verse 12. Mark writes, and on the first day of unleavened bread. Let's just pause right there for a few moments here. Our text opens this morning on the Thursday before Passover. Mark notes that it's the first day of unleavened bread. Now, you're probably aware of this already, but by the Jewish reckoning of days, the following day begins at sundown or at 6 p.m. So everything that we see here as far as preparations are concerned in our text takes place on Thursday before 6 p.m., The actual Passover takes place after 6 p.m., which by Jewish reckoning would have been considered Friday. Friday. So here it is in our text, the first day of unleavened bread. This is the Thursday before Passover. Okay? Needless to say, everything leading up to Jesus' arrest, his trial, and crucifixion are going to take place in absolute hyper mode from here on out. Everything is moving very quickly. The the locomotive is, is careening down the tracks toward the crucifixion. We're just hours away from the crucifixion, as a matter of fact, here on this Thursday before Passover. Jesus and his disciples are likely still in Bethany. Bethany was, uh, was an outlying little community, probably about two miles or so outside of city center Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus would oftentimes spend time in Bethany when he was uh, doing ministry in Jerusalem, and that's likely where he is with his disciples on this Thursday. But Jesus and his disciples would have trekked into Jerusalem and they would have joined the two million other Passover pilgrims that had filed in from the surrounding regions uh, to the temple uh, for the annual Passover celebration. This is when the Jews celebrated their liberation from, from Egyptian slavery. The Passover meal was very symbolic Matter of fact, the original Passover feast consisted of a roasted lamb, unleavened bread, and a dish of bitter herbs. Each of these components carried with it a a, a massively significant uh, picture. The sacrificed lamb reminded the Jews of the blood that was applied to the doorpost so that the angel of death would, would pass over or would keep from slaying their firstborn. The unleavened bread reminded them of their haste, their their speed, their quick-natured exit from Egypt. And the bitter herbs, like horseradish, chicory, endive, and lettuce, they were a reminder of the bitterness of the suffering that took place under Pharaoh. At some time later, 
uh, in the centuries to follow, the Jews actually added to the Passover ceremony the drinking of four cups of wine. These, this was diluted wine. Uh, and these four cups of wine were drunk in stages throughout the Passover meal to recall four very distinct promises that God had made to the nation of Israel. Keep your finger there for a moment in Mark chapter 14 and turn over to Exodus chapter 6. I want to show this to you very briefly. Exodus chapter 6, second book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, chapter 6, look at verses 6 and 7, Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, let me set the stage again, you've got the lamb, you've got the unleavened bread, you've got bitter herbs, and then you have four, four glasses of wine that over the course of the evening, as the Passover meal was being celebrated, would be drunk in successive stages. And they were drunk uh, so that it would be a, a standing reminder of four very distinct promises that God had made to them, the nation of Israel. I look there at Exodus chapter 6, verse 6. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and here's promise number one. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Here's promise number two. I will deliver you from slavery to them. Promise number three. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And then the last promise corresponding to the last glass of wine there was, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. An incredibly symbolic meal that would take on even greater, greater symbolic significance as Jesus went to the cross. As Jesus, the perfect Passover lamb without spot, blemish, or any defect, hung on Calvary's cross as a sacrifice for our sin. So here we are on the eve of the Passover, Thursday of Passion Week, sometime before 6 p.m., and Jesus' disciples ask him this question. The question is, where will you have us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? We know from Luke chapter 22 that Jesus, after this, after this question, commissioned two of his disciples specifically Peter and John, and Jesus sent Peter and John into the city and gave them very, very unique instructions. Look at verses 13 and 14. Here are the instructions that Jesus gives Peter and John. Jesus says, go into the city. Remember, they're going from Bethany into uh, Jerusalem. Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters. Notice, here, that Jesus did not give Peter and John a specific address. Jesus did not give Peter and John specific directions to the home where they would celebrate Passover. Jesus described for them the location instead. Why do you suppose this is? I mean, Jesus could have said, okay, listen, go into Jerusalem, 2911 Kagi Road, that's where you'll find the house, okay? There you are to prepare the Passover for us. Why do you suppose Jesus described how he wanted Peter and John to find the location instead of giving them the exact location? Can I submit to you the reason is because not everyone who wears the uniform fights for their team. <laughs> 
And Judas, who had a very attentive ear, would have listened to that location. And Judas, who we know from verses 10 and 11, where we concluded last week, has already sold Jesus out for a mere 30 shekels of silver. I mean, a pocket full of change in all reality. Judas has sold Jesus for. And so if Jesus utters the exact location, do you not think that Judas will go immediately and find the chief priests and the elders and rat Jesus out? I would submit to you that that is exactly what would happen. And so Jesus does not give a specific address. Jesus does not even give specific directions. Jesus describes how his disciples are to find the location. Peter and John were to look for a man carrying a jar of water. And if you know anything about the culture of the day, this would have stuck out like a sore thumb. It would have been very easy for Peter and John to find this man because it was not customary for a man to carry a jar of water. That would have been the work of a woman or the work of a slave. And so for, for Peter and John to walk into Jerusalem and to find a man carrying a jar of water would have been like Peter and John walking into Jerusalem and finding a man carrying a purse. It, just, it, it would have stuck out to them. It would have been absolutely unusual to see a man carrying water. When they found this man, Jesus instructed them that they were to follow him wherever he entered. Once at the house, Peter and John were instructed to say to the master of the house. So uh, likely this is a servant who is carrying the water. He uh, takes uh, Peter and John to the house. And when Peter and John get to the house, Jesus has instructed Peter and John to ask the master or the owner of the house this question. Where is my guest room where I may eat Passover where my disciple, with my disciples? That's the question that the teacher asks. Jesus says, he, the master of the house, will show you a large upper room furnished and ready, prepare there for us. It's very likely that Jesus had made pre-arrangements here. Uh, as a matter of fact, some uh, commentators, scholars, think that the house owner could have even been relation to Mark. And, uh, and so it's, it's very likely that Jesus had set this up uh, in advance, had set this up beforehand. But Jesus' instructions here sound strikingly similar to the instructions that he gave his disciples when he sent them into the city to find a cult before his triumphal entry. Does it not? Go into the town, there you'll find a cult, right? On which no one has written. And I want you to untie the cult. And when someone asks you, what are you doing? You are to reply this way, the master has need of it. If you can remember back when I preached that message, I said that I, I think it's probably very likely that Jesus had prearranged that meeting as well. And um, in any event, uh, whatever the case, Peter and John talked to the master or the owner of the house. They asked the question that Jesus told them to ask. That is, the teacher says, where is the guest room? And the homeowner, the master of the house, shows them a large furnished upper room just as Jesus said that he would. Jesus instructs his disciples, Peter and John, to prepare there. In that upper room furnished, prepare the Passover there. 
Now, the preparations were just as elaborate as the meal itself. We talked about the meal just a little bit here and its significance. Talked about the lamb that had to be roasted. Talked about the unleavened bread that symbolized the haste or the speed uh, with which uh, Israel was to to get out of uh, Egypt. We talked about the bitter herbs. Talked about those four glasses of wine that were attached to a promise. But the preparation of the Passover meal was just as elaborate as the meal itself. The first step in the Passover meal preparation was a ceremonial search for leaven. Sometime after securing the location and before any other food preparation was made, Peter and John would have systematically combed this house for even the faintest particle of leaven. And if they found it, they would have removed it. That was step number one, to systematically comb the house for any leaven and to remove it if it had been found. And the reasoning behind this is because the first Passover meal in Egypt had to be eaten in haste with everyone ready for the road. And unleavened bread could be baked so much more quickly uh, than a loaf baked with leaven. So this is all symbolic here. And in addition to all this, uh, leaven was a symbol of corruption. Okay? And so the day before the Passover, a homeowner and those helping with the meal preparations took a lighted candle and they searched the house, ceremonially searched the house for any trace of leaven. After the house was considered clear, okay, no, no leaven was to be found, then you have the selection of the Passover lamb. Peter and John would have uh, traveled uh, from the home uh, into Jerusalem there, and they would have selected and purchased a lamb without spot or blemish or any defect, and they would have taken it from where they purchased it to the temple to sacrifice it. It was customary for the worshiper to slay his or her own lamb, as it were, making their own sacrifice. And so Peter and John, with their lamb in tow, would have joined the massive crowd filing into the temple, waiting to sacrifice their Passover lamb. I just want you to get the picture in your mind. We've we've talked about the, 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 the temple a little bit. I mean, it was an absolutely stellar, grand, beyond imagination structure. It towered over everything else in Jerusalem. Here you have two million people filing into Jerusalem from the surrounding uh, uh, regions there, all bringing their lamb to be sacrificed so that they too can prepare it for the Passover meal. Josephus, a a first century Jewish uh, historian, uh, has, if his calculations are even remotely correct, uh, he states that there would have been almost a quarter million lambs sacrificed in preparation for the Passover. You think two million people, a quarter million lambs sacrificed for those two million people. The temple was a bustling, bustling place. Between the worshipers and the altar... So we're walking into the temples now. And between the worshipers who have their lamb in tow and the altar were two long lines of priests, each with a gold or silver bowl in front of them. And as the lamb was sacrificed, the blood was caught in one of these two bowls, and then that bowl was passed down a long line of priests, and the priest at the end of the line would dash that blood upon the altar. The carcass would have then been prepared, the entrails and the fat taken out. The carcass was handed back to the worshiper. And so Peter and John would have, would have had their lamb now ready to take home. 
and prepare for the Passover meal. But you can't let the lamb touch anything because then it becomes defiled. As a matter of fact, when you're cooking the lamb, it can't even touch anything because it becomes defiled. It had to be roasted over an open fire pit uh, made of pomegranate wood. As the Passover lamb was roasting, other ingredients would have been prepared as well. Uh, these included, so uh, we've, you, got, you got the lamb, uh, you got the unleavened bread, you got the glasses of wine, but you also have a bowl of salt water that would have been prepared. And this salt water bowl was symbolic as well. It symbolized the tears shed by Israel in, in uh, Egypt, but it also uh, symbolized the Red Sea being crossed in deliverance. And then you have this paste that was made as well. So in preparation for the Passover, apples and dates and pomegranates and nuts, they were all mixed together uh, and, and made a thick uh, paste uh, that would have been applied to other things, and that paste was symbolic of the bricks that Israel had to make while they were under Egyptian uh, captivity. So all of this has very, uh, very significant imagery attached to it. And it was a celebration of God's faithfulness. God saved us. And he's promised that he will be our God and we will be his people. Massive, massive significance to all that took place during this Passover celebration. But again, the most significant piece was the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to notice that Jesus is sovereign over every detail. He is sovereign over every detail of life. He holds the, the stars and the planets and their current trajectory. He upholds all creation with the very power of his spoken word. And he is in control, sovereignly in control of every moment leading up to his crucifixion and death. The servant with the water jar, the master of the house ready to oblige, the large upper room furnished and ready, all of these Peter and John found just as Jesus said they would. Jesus is in control of his own death. It's a beautiful reminder here in the Passover meal. Number two, write this down. The bombshell announcement. The bombshell announcement. Find verse 17 there in your Bible. Look at verses 17 and 18. Mark writes, And when it was evening, he, that's Jesus, came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. While the Passover didn't begin until 6 p.m. on Thursday which would have really been considered the beginning of Friday. Prudence probably kept Jesus from making his way through Jerusalem's city center before sunset. Remember, Jesus was an enemy of the state at this point. If anybody had seen him, they would have either ratted him out or tried to seize him by force. Likely under the veil of darkness, Jesus and the ten. It's interesting here. Uh, verse 17 actually says he came with the twelve. Uh, Peter and John may have gone back and met with, with uh, Jesus and the rest of the, of the disciples in Bethany, and they all came back together, Un uncertain here. Uh, but in any event, Jesus and his disciples returned to the house under the veil of darkness where uh, Peter and John had made the preparations for the Passover meal. And so once secure in the upper room, Jesus and his disciples begin to celebrate it's interesting to note that the Israelites ate the first Passover meal standing. Why is that? 
Well, the reason behind that is because they were to be ready for the journey. They were to be ready to hit the road. They were to be ready to leave Egypt. But here, Mark notes that Jesus and the disciples ate while reclining at the table. This posture served as a picture. Again, imagery everywhere here. This picture served as a posture, as a, this posture rather served as a picture to the Jews that they were now free, that they were living in their own home, in their own country, and they were now free. Jesus was eager to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. As a matter of fact, Luke records Jesus as saying, I have earnestly de- uh, desired, I have longed for the opportunity to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. But intermingled with Jesus' eagerness was a troubled heart because Jesus knew that not everyone who wears the uniform fights for the team. He knew that there was a betrayer in the ranks. He knew that amongst his closest followers was one who would sell him out. And so intermingled with Jesus' eagerness to eat the Passover meal with his disciples before he suffered was a troubled heart. I think Jesus' troubled heart grew as the night progressed. John even tells us that Jesus became troubled in his spirit, John 13, 21. And at some point in the evening, Jesus drops this bombshell statement. Jesus says, truly I say to you, one of you, one of you will betray me, the one who is eating with me, one who's eating with me. It's interesting to note that the words eating with me aren't merely intended to be an indication of the person who would betray him, but rather as a means of pointing to the enormity of the offense. In other words, it's one of my own. One of my own. One who has been with me will betray me. That very person was a table companion, one who was supposed to be a good friend and associate. I mean, Jesus had alluded to his his betrayal many times before, but now he plainly said, he clearly said that the betrayer was one of his own. You could have likely heard a pin drop in this moment. I mean, heads would have raised immediately. They would have turned on a swivel. Eyebrows would have been furled. Perhaps a heavy swallow or gulp could have been heard in the room. This, This was an absolutely startling announcement to the ears of Jesus' disciples. Save one. Save one. A couple of things that I want you to note here is just the deep, deep love of Jesus. The deep, deep love of Jesus. John writes this in John chapter 13. He says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to be with the Father, having loved his own, who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I mean, there is scarcely not a greater picture of how to love your enemies well than what we see take place in the upper room this eve of the Passover. I mean, sandwiched in uh, Mark chapter 14, uh, verses 17 and 18, are, are the washing of the disciples' feet, And the teaching about humility there in John chapter 13, that all takes place here in the upper room. I mean, there is no greater picture of loving your enemies than that which is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. I mean, think about Judas for a second here, the one wearing the the uniform, but yet not fighting for the team. 
Jesus knew this all along. He had not told his disciples. He had talked about his betrayal. But Jesus didn't tell his disciples who it was. I mean, Jesus could have easily exposed uh, Judas. He, he could have embarrassed him. Uh, he, he could have held him out as an example at any point in time before his disciples, but he didn't. Instead, he chose to extend mercy, love, and grace even to a known enemy. Jesus loved Judas even though he saw the depths of his heart. Even though he knew how devious his intentions were, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved Jesus even though he knew uh, that Judas would turn his back on him and turn him over. I think we see this in several ways here in the text. Uh, Jesus demonstrates his love for Judas by washing his feet. Again, Mark does not capture this instance for us. John does. But sandwiched right here in between verses 17 and 18 would have been Jesus humbly getting on the ground and washing his disciples' feet, including the feet of Judas. Matter of fact, as Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he looked up and said to them, You are all clean, except for one of you. Except for one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. And that's why he said, Not all of you are clean. Not only was washing Judas's feet an act of love, but Jesus lovingly appealed to Judas's conscience in this moment when he declared that not everyone in the room was clean. I mean, Judas know that he, knew that he was a betrayer. Judas knew that he had sold Jesus out. And so as Jesus is on the ground there washing his disciples' feet and wiping them with the towel around his waist, it was an appeal to Judas's conscience. Repent and believe. See my humility. See my great love for you. Repent. This was an opportunity for Judas to lay down his cards on the table, confess his sin, and repent, but he didn't. He didn't. His calloused heart was lifeless to Jesus' display of grace and his offer of mercy. Jesus demonstrated his love for Judas by washing his feet. We see Jesus demonstrated his love for Judas in the whole seating arrangement this evening as well. Jesus had given Judas the honored seat to his left. This was the, the place reserved for the honored guest at a meal, and it had been given to none other than Judas. Matter of fact, Judas would have been so close to Jesus, they, they would have been within earshot. They could have talked to each other without anyone else in the room even knowing. This was a perfect opportunity to repent, but Judas didn't. Jesus also demonstrates his love for Judas in honoring him during the dinner with the morsel or with the piece of bread. In the first century, to take a morsel uh, from the table and to dip it in the common dish, this was that dish of uh, nuts and fruits that had been ground into a paste. And so to, to, to dip the bread in that common dish and then to offer it to a guest was a gesture of extreme honor and friendship. Jesus was reaching out to Judas in effect saying, here's my love, here's, here is my friendship. Will you receive it? Will you receive it? We know that, Jesus, or that Judas took the bread, but he did not respond in repentance. 
Jesus demonstrated his love for Judas by washing his feet, by the seating arrangement at dinner this evening, and by honoring him as a guest with the bread. Friends, I think there's a lesson here for us about loving our enemies. I think there's a very clear lesson for us here. Jesus' actions are a shining example of his own words in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven or that you may demonstrate that you are indeed sons of your Father who is in heaven. Friends, how you love your enemies is a reflection of your love for your Savior. Let me just rewind that statement. How you love your enemies is a display of how you love your Savior. Are you willing to wash the feet of your enemies? I want to also make a brief note here about the fact that the love of money will absolutely eat you alive. The love of money will eat you alive. Friends, be careful. I must be careful. We must be careful that we are not caught up in the love of things, the love of that which is material, the love of our possessions, the love of ink on paper. Be careful. Be very, very careful. It was the love of money that was the cause of Judas's unhappy ruin. His was an act of covetousness. He was a thief. Judas stands before the whole world as a solemn example that the love of money is the root of all evil. To covet, to long for, to lust after, to worship, to give yourself to things is like a battery that just explodes with acid. And not only does the battery acid get on your soul, but it has tentacles that reach into every crevice of your heart. It eats away at everything that it comes in contact with. Covetousness is what lurks under the surface of discontentment and the continual longing for more. That's why the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 13 says, be content with what you have. Material possessions disconnect us from reality. They give us the impression that we're needless when in fact we are ever desperate for God's sustaining grace. J.C. Ryle once said this. He said, a Christian ought to be far more afraid of being rich than being poor. A Christian ought to be far more afraid of being rich than being poor. Is it sinful to have possessions? It is not, but be careful. Be careful that they do not captivate your soul and become your treasure. Number three, we see the baffled disciples. The baffled disciples. Look at verse 19. Mark says, And they began to be sorrowful and to say to him, Jesus, one after another, is it I? Is it I? And Jesus has just dropped a bombshell in the upper room. One of you is going to betray me. And now Jesus' disciples are absolutely dumbfounded. They're absolutely baffled, saying, is it I? Am I the one? When the disciples heard Jesus say that one of them was going to betray him, they were sorrowful. 
Lupeo is the word there. It means to be grieved or to be distressed. They were grieved on the inside. They were distressed on the inside. I mean, you can imagine their surprise. These were the men that had been with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. For all their flaws, for all their imperfections, Jesus and his disciples had become almost like a little nomadic family traveling around from region to region, from place to place, doing ministry together. I mean, these were the men that walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, ate with Jesus, prayed with Jesus, did ministry shoulder to shoulder with Jesus. To hear Jesus say that one of them would defect and betray him was to them unimaginable. John writes in John chapter 13 that the disciples looked at one another uncertain of whom he spoke. They were deeply saddened and they were deeply confused. One by one, Andrew, Peter, James, John, Philip, Nathaniel, Matthew, James and Judas, Alphaeus, Simon, and even Judas Iscariot, whose heart was as cold as ice, asked the question, Lord, is it I? Is it I? And the question posed by the disciples here includes with it the Greek negative particle. All you need to get from that is this. Their question assumes a negative response. Their question assumes that Jesus would say, no, it's not you. It's not you. It's interesting to note that the disciples had not very long ago debated amongst themselves concerning who was the greatest. Now they are stuck in the upper room considering who's the vilest. Let me bring the picture back to Judas here for just a moment and say a few words about the human conscience. The only way I see that a man can continue on in sin, or a woman for that matter, in sin, with knowledge of its devastating consequences, is that there is no longer any fear of God. All fear of God has been wiped away. In Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2, David said this, he said, transgression speaks, a better translation is actually transgression whispers. Transgression whispers to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out, cannot be detected and hated. You see, God in his graciousness has given Judas every opportunity to repent, every opportunity to acknowledge his sin. But Judas's conscience, his built-in warning system that was intended to help him discern what was right from wrong, had been seared. Friends, your conscience can either be strengthened by continually hiding God's word in your heart, or your conscience can be seared by continually rejecting God's word and pursuing sin instead. When this conscience becomes desensitized, men and women become like a loose cannon of sinful destruction. Judas is a clear picture of what happens when a person loses their moral compass. They don't even know where spiritual north is anymore. He's become so desensitized that he doesn't even care what the consequences are. 
Jesus gave Judas an exit ramp at every point along the way. Jesus gave Judas every opportunity for his conscience to lead him to repentance. If if, If Judas would have just stood up in the company that night and said, it's me, I'm the one, I'm guilty, please forgive me, Jesus would have gladly embraced him and forgiven him of his iniquity. But he didn't. But he didn't. Like a missile speeds toward his target, Judas is intent on carrying out his plan of attack. Not everyone who wears the uniform fights for the team. Number four, we'll bring it to a close. There's a betrayer in the camp. A betrayer in the camp. We've seen the beautiful reminder of the Passover meal. We've seen the bombshell announcement that one would betray. We've seen the baffled response of the disciples, and now we see the betrayer in the camp. Look at verses 20 and 21. He said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Well, in case they're still confused, Jesus clarifies for them that it's one of the twelve. It's one of you uh, that is going to betray me. More specifically, one who is dipping the bread in the dish. The sign indicating who the betrayer was consisted of Jesus dipping the unleavened bread into the dish and then handing that bread to Judas. John tells us uh, that when Jesus had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Jesus says, woe to that man by whom the Son of of Man is betrayed. But it's interesting to note that this is not a vindictive woe. Neither is it the woe of a curse, even. I believe Jesus' heart was broken over the sin of Judas. There were inescapable consequences for his sin, but Jesus' heart was broken for him. Both Luke and John say quite simply that the devil entered into Judas. In the last analysis, that's what happened. Judas wanted to be Jesus. He wanted Jesus to be what he wanted him to be to him. In reality, Judas attached himself to Jesus uh, not for uh, the sake of forgiveness of sins, not for the sake of, of pardon, but for the sake of what he could get out of it. And then when he realized that that this Savior uh, was destined for a cross, Judas defected. Judas wanted out. Judas wanted nothing to do with a crucified Jesus. Far from surrendering to Jesus, Judas wanted Jesus to surrender to him. Jesus, uh, or Judas rather, wanted Jesus to do things his way. Friends, we shudder at Judas, but let us consider our own lives, covetousness, Jealousy, ambition, all of these lurk in our own hearts. There's a Judas that is resident right here. And there's a Judas that's resident in your heart. We're not that much different. Let me close this morning by saying just a couple of words about human responsibility and divine sovereignty. This could be a a whole... uh, session of messages here. There's, There's a ton to say here. But, but what do we do with the fact that Judas was uh, destined to betray 
Jesus, but at the same time, Judas is responsible for his betrayal of Jesus. How, how do we coalesce human responsibility with divine sovereignty? Well, Jesus bundles the two here right in our text for us. Here you have the sovereignty of God. God planned for Jesus to be betrayed. God planned it from eternity past and revealed it in the Old Testament. Nothing has happened by chance. Judas is simply fulfilling God's preordained divine plan. But at the same time, Judas is totally and completely culpable. He is totally and completely responsible for his crime. Woe to him, Jesus says. Judas has no one to blame but himself. Judas, in his sin and greed, has dashed dreams, and he did exactly what he wanted to do. But in so doing, he fulfilled the will of God. It's absolutely amazing. This is absolutely mind-boggling how, how God's will and human responsibility, God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility fit together, but they absolutely do. Notice that Jesus says this gripping statement here. He says it would, have been, it would have been better if he had never been born. In other words, it would have been better if he never existed. Why? Because Judas wasted the very reason he was born. Friends, why were you born? Why do you exist? What is your purpose? The chief end of man is to glorify God. To glorify God. To worship him forever and ever. That's why you were born. Whether you are a Judas or a Peter or whoever you are, you were born for one reason. To love and obey and worship Jesus Christ. That's why. That's why. And if you die without submitting your heart to Christ, it would indeed be better that you had never been born you had never been born. Friends, Judas was neither a, a martyr nor was he a robot. He was res a responsible human being who made his own decisions, but in doing so, he fulfilled the will of God. He must not be made into a hero or a helpless victim of merciless predestination. Judas was lost for the same reason that millions upon millions of people, potentially some in here this morning, are lost this very day. Why is that? Why is that? Well, the reason is because he did not repent of his sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, if you have not been born again, one day you will wish that you had never been born at all. It is appointed once for man to die, and then there's judgment. There is a Redeemer, God's blessed Son, precious Lamb of God, Messiah, Holy One, and he stands ready and willing to forgive you. Will you receive his great gift of mercy and grace? If not, you will wish you had never been born. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. Calling, O sinner, come home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that it is sufficient Sufficient for salvation, sufficient to lead us to Christ. It's sufficient for sanctification and growth and godliness. It's sufficient for our every want. It satisfies 
uh, the very depths of our soul. God, I pray that if there's a person here this morning who is wearing the jersey, but who's not fighting for the team, that you would cause them by your great matchless mercy to lay down, uh, to lay down their arms, to surrender to you, to become a new creation, to be born again, to be given new spiritual life. Father, I pray that you would grant them the, the mercy and grace of repentance, that they would turn from their sin and turn to Christ and receive his mercy and grace. Forgiveness full and free for all our sin. Jesus paid it all, all to him we owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. For those of us here this morning, Lord, that know you by faith and repentance, I pray that as we leave this morning, we would leave rejoicing, uh, Lord. We would leave with, with heads held high, not because of our own merit or record, but because we stand without condemnation because Jesus has stood in our place. It is to him that we, that we bring our worship. It is to him that we bring our honor. It is to him alone that we bring our great praise. We pray, God, that you would receive it, that it would be a pleasing aroma to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.